My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome to Aquarium Drunkard Transmission. So glad to have you here once again. I remember first hearing about the Black Lips, the band that our guest this week, Jared Swilly, is a founding member of. When friends and uh, folks I knew at the record store I worked at would discuss seeing them live, they would always do so with a head shake and adopt this affected, bewildered quality. Like, you're not going to believe this band out of Atlanta, they practically burn venues down. And while the Black Lips have matured and grown a lot since forming back in 1999, they haven't quote-unquote settled down either. Case in point is Apocalypse Love, the group's 10th album, which was released last year on Fire Records. Incorporating gospel and country influences is as strange and dynamic and exciting as the band's early work, but it also showcases a new depth to their songwriting quality. Today on the show, Black Lip Jared Swilly joins me to discuss his Pentecostal roots, his minister father coming out of the closet, the importance of the Bomp Records catalog in the band's early days, his mentor the mighty Hannibal, and much, much more. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse podcast network. Check out TalkHouse for more great reading and listening, and support Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions by pledging over on our Patreon. All right, here's my conversation with Jared Swilly of the Black Lips. Thanks so much for listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'll speak with you a little more on the other side. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. And uh, I saw you got into the Zoom earlier. I hope there wasn't any weirdness about the time, but thank oh, you. Oh, not at all. I just, I just, yeah, yeah, not at all. I just, uh, <laughs> yeah. just went back to work. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Just finished up a great conversation with another artist, and I'm psyched to talk with you about the Black Lips. I've been listening to the Black Lips for many, many, many years. In fact, my dog is now barking to signal, I don't know, approval, I guess. Um, <laughs> I think that maybe I even saw you guys. Uh, I was in a band that played at a record store in Temp- or Tucson called Zia Records. And you guys played on a record store day as well, the same day as us. So we always claimed that we played a show together, even I, though. I th- yeah, I remember. I actually remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was, I mean. I think maybe 2008 or something now that I'm thinking about it, which is, which is way, I remember, way back. I remember that. Cause I, uh, I killed the battery on our van <laughs> during that show. Cause I started like boiling ginger during the day. So I had like a hot pot thing. Sure. And I, I left it plugged in while we were playing and the engine wasn't on and <laughs> we had to get jumped. 
of all the uh, there, uh, especially in those days and and earlier, the Black Lips had an incredible mythology about them that you guys were just always running around, getting in trouble, doing incredible stuff. But I love the idea of like a, a rock and roll ginger boiling incident being what actually killed the killed the band. <laughs> yeah. It sounds so holistic. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, try to balance it out in those days, especially tried to balance out the, uh, the de- destruction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats on uh, apocalypse. Love is such a cool record. And really the last couple years of the band has been, it's been so cool to see a group that's been as long running as you guys that has just continued to develop and try new things and sort of not stick to one single thing. If I look back through the discography, there's a lot of that, you know, but it's but it, this this new record's really, it's fantastic. Oh, thanks. Glad you like it. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy. I was pretty happy with it. Uh, on it I, I, yeah, you know, I didn't really think it would get made for a while. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of, for a minute, I kind of thought the whole music thing was over. <laughs> what, what was it that inspired that thought? Oh, just the whole pandemic thing. Like, uh, sure, sure. It just seemed like, you know, of all things, I was like, if things ever came back to normal at a certain period during that, I was like, the last priority on anyone's list is going to be like shows happening or tours. So, sure. It's kind of why I'm building a deck right now, really. Because I start, yeah, like during the pandemic, I, I mean, I was all over the place, but I really started uh, just working. Like, <laughs> I just got right, right into it, just like working. I was like, well, I guess that was a good run. Does it? I mean, does it? Does that feel weird? Does that feel strange? Or does it feel okay? Because I mean, lots of musicians work jobs, you know, too. Yeah, it felt okay doing it. It was just kind of like like a big wake up call like during the pandemic i got it was a i mean it was a crazy time for everyone but then it was like i was like oh well you know life goes on i was just you know i've been on tour since i was 16 years old like never stopping at all and that was the first time in my life where it was like oh whoa like you know Um, a minute to breathe in some ways yeah definitely but uh and now i just like working like there's so much downtime between tours and uh i don't party anymore so it's like um you know like a thing to fill my time learning new stuff (laughs) yeah yeah the uh you you mentioned the pandemic obviously and the fact that you had been on tour almost your entire life i mean really certainly your entire adult life um i was thinking last night i was kind of going over thoughts for this uh this interview and I found myself reflecting on just how, I mean, maybe you can correct my use of the word if I'm using the wrong word, but just how unlikely it is that the Black Lips are a band that have survived decades now at this point and just like continued going. Because when you're a kid, I can't imagine that you had any thoughts about this far into the future, or did you? Um, no, when we were kids and when we started, uh, especially then, like I didn't really plan for the next day really, but, um, we were like, it's rare. Like we were all incredibly dedicated to it and we didn't really have backup plans. It was kind of like a self-imposed kind of thing. Like when I think about it now, when I was young, I probably could have had other options, but that time and that like mindset I was in, I was like, this is my only option. It's like this or like other friends of mine that age were like going to like Iraq or going to prison or like working at a diner. Yeah. So I was like, this is really my thing. Like I never even considered secondary education. I mean, I was kicked out of school in ninth grade. So it was like, and we, we all kind of were in that same mindset. So it was like, it was like it was kind of like a do or die thing and at that age like the brotherhood thing was really like a big thing so we just went on this grand adventure and never really stopped and we lost a couple members very early on so that like made it like a sticking point as well 
um like we got to do this so it's it's kind of like rare to get that kind of like as i look back on that like to have that level of like dedication and like i was really i, mean, I still am but just really really into like rock and roll or like the cause of rock and roll yeah i'm i i was thinking about the fact that you guys did get kicked out of school that was that was that was in atlanta right growing up yeah you know and i was thinking about how how many things have changed in music the music industry on one hand but also just music culture on the other you know and i was thinking about how subculture subculture used to really potentially be the sort of thing that you could get kicked out of school right you know what i mean like you could yeah you for you, sure there really was like a, a it's like there's there's mainstream and then there's this other lane and i feel like over the last however many decades maybe those lanes feel more interconnected or blurry or i don't know but but really thinking about how you guys really do come from the sort of old a a a, a, a former punk subculture world where there were stakes you could get kicked out of school you could get you know well, d disavowed by your family well it was certainly a different era um i mean i think about especially like bands in the 80s in atlanta or even the 90s because i mean atlanta or the south in general is a very different place back then like now i think like culture and society has gotten a lot more homogenized and being different is seems like it's very encouraged now like right now like it doesn't seem like very subversive to like skateboard or wear a leather jacket that's like right. dads do you know that's like most dads <laughs> were into punk rock now but of course, at that yeah. time in the south like even atlanta being like a big city it was um i mean it was a lot like the 50s kind of with like the jocks and like like you know like jocks fighting the greasers like we had you know we got in a lot of fights with like football players and stuff like growing up and you know get called dirty names and uh yeah. i mean that was kind of it was it like kind of sucked but it was also like kind of fun as being like a teenager like doing that because you want to be bad i at least i wanted to be real bad when i was a teenager and it was just kind of like this like like just going to school was almost like a battle like i kind of romanticized it a little bit and like you know we were very influenced by things like i remember they made us read the outsiders in eighth grade and that really that that book like changed me more than a lot of like punk rock records and because i felt like a real like kinship with that whole thing sure but um but yeah i mean it was especially atlanta at that time we grew up in a very very conservative place uh you know i came from a family i was raised in a pentecostal church my dad's a pentecostal preacher and granddad was and so it was it was we were definitely the weirdos did I, well, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, 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 I am familiar with, with the sort of like religious roots that you, that you had growing up. Did, was that immediately one of the things that you felt a need to maybe rebel against? Were you kind of defining yourself against that some in those days or was that not really part of what you were, your worldview, you know? Funny enough, like I wasn't really rebelling about that at all. Like, I really liked the music because it was like a full gospel. Like yeah. my dad, my dad was a preacher at like a majority black church, which was kind of, which is kind of like when I think about that, that's kind of like doesn't happen a lot. But all my family's churches were, I mean, Atlanta is a majority like black city. But um, sure, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And I remember when I was first starting the band, being influenced by the energy that was at those church churches because like they spoke in tongues and the music was really good. And it'd be like nine in the morning and people were like having seizures and they call it getting drunk in the Holy spirit. My dad would like hit people on the heads and they'd fall down. And I was like, if you could even harness like 20% of this energy at a rock show. And I haven't really seen that because you're not having a religious experience, like at a music at most like rock and roll concerts, but there they're really having that. So I was actually really, um influenced by that and like my family's church like yeah they were like the speaking in tongues kind of really charismatic thing but also very liberal like my 
dad was pretty controversial at first because he didn't believe anyone, anyone was going to hell. He believed in like universal salvation. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like 10 years ago, he came out of the closet. So he always, and he was pretty artistic himself. So they were actually weirdly pretty like supportive of like the music. They didn't like a lot of the early stuff because we'd get like written about in the, I remember one time we were written about in the music section and it had, it wasn't a true story. They kind of fabricated it, but it said something about like Cole sucking my dick during a show or something sure. like that. But the religion section was the thing on my dad's church and that he was kind of bummed out about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just cause it, you know, <laughs> but it was like fun. Like it was kind of, he wasn't like mad about it. It was more like, man. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Totally. Your dad, your dad coming out of the closet in, was it, two, it was like 2010 or something like that, I think, is when that story yeah. broke. Yeah, around I, then. I remember in a weird way, I remember reading that and being really fascinated by it and, and really feeling like a sense that like, it's going to sound weird, but it's like somehow it made sense in a way not because you know that's what you expect you don't expect uh, a preacher from the south to come out and say that he's gay and you don't expect there to be people who greet that with warmth and love and not rejection you know because that's something that a lot of a lot happened but it's also just a reminder that like uh, religion is just as much a space for weirdness as anything else you know so for you to kind of come out of that um that charismatic i mean kind of psychedelic experience of religion you know and then find your way into rock and roll and then you know whatever how many years later have this whole chance to be able to like be able to like speak about that your dad coming out and being able to share that with people you know it's just it's a really fascinating thing and it makes me wonder you know rock and roll was sort of started by preachers kids for the most part right yeah i mean like that's what i always kind of like people will, would always kind of say like oh, are you rebelling against like the family profession because i mean it goes back to like my my great grandfather was this guy called they called him the walking bible he oh. um he was illiterate but he started like the biggest church in Greenville, South Carolina, and he could quote any scripture of the Bible, even when he was in dementia. Um, wow. But I was always influenced by it. It's like, you know, little Richard and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. Actually, my great uncle knew Jerry Lee, no, or knew when he was alive, Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin, um, um, Jimmy Swagger. So yeah. there's like, that's like all the rock and rollers from the South, like started in the like gospel church. So I was, I always thought it was cool. I mean, maybe it would be, I would have been bummed out about it if it was one of those ones that was like condemning people and damning people. But the one I grew up in, the one I saw was pretty much just about like the good parts of like, like the Jesus stuff, which is just like, yeah, you know, helping people out and being nice and, yeah. uh, you know. That's awesome. That's awesome. In those early days, though, thinking about that sort of um, thinking about that dedication that you guys all had immediately and that you felt this like do or die kind of um, push. I wonder what was the what were the bands there in Atlanta that sort of pointed the way forward for you guys or sort of seemed like, OK, we can kind of emulate these kinds of people. I know I think about like I remember in the early days uh, getting turned on to people like Mighty Hannibal through Black Lips, right? And sort of like yeah. understanding that like, or even, um, you know, Lonnie Hawley, you know, you know, like these like ways where all of a sudden I'm like recognizing, okay, these guys aren't just like scrappy rock and roll kids. They are, but they're also sort of part of this lineage of Southern weirdos mavericks people who don't yeah exactly i mean do it's the... like i mean it's funny you mentioned hannibal he became my mentor um you know the last like 10 years of his life um or maybe not 10 years i'm bad with dates but the last all... bunch of years of his <laughs> life um he became my mentor i brought him back to atlanta and like we did his first atlanta show since the 70s and backed him up and uh became very close i spoke to him every day 
for at least the last five years of his life, reunited him with his um, wife who he hadn't seen in like 20 something years. Actually, me and my dad did his funeral when he died. Mm. Uh, and I, and then Cole actually became pretty close to Lonnie Holly. I think Cole did a collaboration with him. I remember but, that. Yeah. But it was cool. Like being friends with someone like Hannibal who has such, I mean, he was a contemporary of like James Brown and Otis Redding and all those guys. And then us becoming friends, it was just, and just being friend, like becoming that really close with someone that's so much older. It was like, uh, we, it was a very meaningful relationship, uh, between me and him. Um, it was just really cool. I like that, like that, that lineage kind of thing. And, um, I don't know. It was like beautiful getting to know that guy. Were there other rock bands or punk bands that you sort of looked up to and wanted to emulate in those days too? Like in Atlanta, there wasn't a lot. There was this band called the Subsonics that we liked a lot. But other than that, like all of our early shows was kind of with, we, we didn't really have a place to like fit in. There was like a, like a punk club that we played at, but it was always kind of like, you know, like Mohawks and stuff like that. Like we consider ourselves a punk band, but it was like real like street punk. And um, even like it was sometimes harder to fit in with like the punk crowd, especially because when we started playing, there was like a big skinhead scene in Atlanta and they were not big fans of us and uh, beat us up a bunch. Actually, they beat us up way more than like the jocks. They were way scarier. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But the stuff we really looked up to was like the label that put out our first record, Bump, like... One thing I miss about those days, like I just got Spotify for the first time in my life and it's incredible. I, I'm really late to the game. I just got it like two weeks ago. Yeah. But like discovering music back then, like we found out, like we'd heard of like Iggy Pop. And through that, somehow we found out about Bomp Records because they put out um, some of his like rarities stuff, like the Metallic KO yeah. stuff. And then we got like the Bomp mail order catalog and we started writing letters to Susie Shaw and she would like send us mixtapes and that's how we like found out about it and like when you got something like the bump catalog it was like the holy grail and that was really what um turned me on to like this whole other world that and like my local video store had a copy of the decline of western civilization um that penelope spheris movie and like yeah i love all the bands in that but seeing the germs performance there that was like really a huge like lightning moment for me where i was just like that's that's like me feeling the holy spirit when i saw that it was like i think right after that was when we were like we gotta like start playing shows because we were a band in our in our heads more before we actually did it um yeah yeah that's another thing that i think is fascinating is that sort of that youthful exuberance that causes people to dive in before they even know 100% what they're doing or at all what they're doing. And it sounds like that was part of it for you guys in those early days. Yeah, very, very naive. Like, that's one good thing about, like, the youth is, like, the naivety that you can't really, like, reproduce. Like, yeah. I don't know, we were just, I felt like we were so wide-eyed. And I was just like, and just like, like, I still hear good music from time to time. But I've kind of, like, it's been a while since I've heard one of, like, not knowing about anything you know you've heard like the beatles and the stones you're like that stuff's pretty rad that rules the kinks oh that's cool but then like you open this door of like and hearing all this stuff for the first time it's really like you'll never recreate that um at least not in this lifetime but yeah it was like it's really magical like finding you get all excited and there's this whole world of of stuff yeah you guys, of course, start putting out records and you're on various labels. Over time, of course, you start to get a name for yourselves. And over the last couple of years, I feel like we've seen a resurgence of interest in... It's always funny, like, you know, so I'm 38 and I'm just now starting to kind of get to the age where it's like, oh, wow, I talked to that artist 10 years ago or I saw that artist 20 years ago you know like that's the yeah. thing that starts to happen and it's weird but um 
over the last couple of years, I've seen you sort of seen this resurgence of interest in what gets referred to as like the indie sleaze era, you know? And yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a weird thing. I don't a hundred percent know what to make of it because a lot of stuff gets lumped together under that umbrella that didn't feel like the same thing to me at the time. You know what I mean? Um, like you guys didn't feel like you were the same thing as like, beach house or whatever you know but you'll sort of see yeah, like yeah. you'll see the same stuff it's just stuff from that era and of course i loved all that stuff but i wonder what that's like for you on a personal level i mean does it feel weird does it feel weird that sense of revisionist history almost i mean not really for me because that was another thing like with all those bands that are lumped in with that like I knew a lot of them just from playing the same festivals and same stuff, but we never really felt a part of any of that stuff. Like if anything, like, like we started out not feeling a kinship with the bands that were there. Now I feel like we, there was more of like, we were looking a little to stuff that at that time was like 20 years old right, or more. Um, so when we did like, cause you know, especially like during those vice days and we were playing like Coachella and stuff like that, I always kind of felt like the odd ones out because we never, I mean, we weren't trying to not follow the trend, but I don't think what we were doing was ever really like the trend. Like even when we first started, I remember like before we had a record out was like, like the garage rock revival with like the white stripes and the hives and all that. And we're like, Oh, we missed that. We were too young. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. I just, I never really felt like a kinship with any of the, and I guess just our like, you know, connection with vice and stuff like that. But, um, I don't know. I don't really think we were like a retro band, but, but, uh, yeah, I don't think we get grouped in. We get, I've, I've seen that, that thing's coming back, but I don't think we're on that radar. I mean, maybe yeah. we are, who knows? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's good if you're not, because it doesn't feel to me, especially listening to this new record, I mean, it doesn't really feel like you guys are a backward looking band and that you're you're not trying to make a record that you made already. Um, and I wonder if you could speak to me a little bit about that sort of what fuels the sense of evolution. Was there ever, you know, uh, uh, a point where you you guys felt like you had created a sound that you you were beholden to in any way? Was that something that you struggled with or? How how is it has it worked over the years? Um, nothing we've ever done has ever been thought out or like planned out at all. The only time we ever did that was we tried to make a country record. That was the only time we ever went into something saying, like, yeah, let's make it sound country-ish. Um it's really just been like kind of like a natural progression. Like I just try to keep writing songs that I think sound good. Yeah. Um yeah like they might change like like i definitely think the last one us working with like saul from fat white family like there's definitely like a producer's touch on something um and we've also like changed like members like i've always kind of viewed us like more like a collective than like me and cole started the band and we're the two like constant members but every time someone joins we bring them on like not only monetarily but uh, like creatively is like just a full writer um, right so it's never like we've never had the lead singer there's never been like this is like everyone like once you're in the band you have equal say and equal pay right that's pretty revolutionary in its own i mean where was was there uh ever a thought like where did that that come from for you guys was it just always pretty instinctual it just made sense this is the way we're gonna do things that's just what we always did. Cause I just thought that was how you did it. Like we're a team or we're like a gang. And then like, as time went on and especially when we started getting like movie syncs or like things. Sure. And, like I heard of other bands that like, and I won't mention any names, but that like, you know, percentage everything out and all that stuff. And I was like, a, that sounds too complicated. Sure. B, that sounds like, it's more trouble than it's worth and like that's where like egos get bruised and stuff like that it's just way easier to like all for one one for all i do uh 
I do. I one of my favorite books that I listen. I listen to audiobooks and I read, you know, with my <laughs> eyes as well. But sometimes I'll listen to audiobooks and I listen to the Warren Zane's book about Tom Petty, and it was really, really good. But yeah, there is a pretty difficult moment in the Heartbreakers history where they had to move away from the one for all and all for one sort of arrangement. And, you know, he took the lion's share of the of the percentage or whatever, because he's Tom yeah. Petty, right? Yeah, you know? he's, Tom, yeah he's, see, he's Tom Petty. But see, with our thing, there is no like there's no Tom Petty leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. No. And, and it's and it's been wild to see like having Zumi in the band, like I watched your guys' performance on the best show and it was, it was great, but it also felt to me like I was like, Whoa, I'm like watching a, a just as a different band than I even realized, you know what I mean? And that to me is, uh, I think another reason why maybe the project has lasted as long as it has is that you've allowed it to be as elastic as it needs to be. Um, I mean, do you ever? Could you ever see a world where it is just you and Cole making, you know, a record, or does it feel like you? It feels like important to the project's integrity to have all these other people kind of weigh in and and come in and put their own spin on things. I'd probably. I mean, I'm open for for anything. Right now, this lineup. Um, it works for everyone's lives really well. Um, yeah. So I don't see it changing anytime soon. Like, you know, um, but hey, you know, you never know, especially with like Blacklist. Like the, the important thing for like longevity is like being able to be malleable and kind of just going with the flow, like whatever happens, like, you know. Yeah. Just that's that seemed to work so far putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and as an artist you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings a million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. We talked a little bit about those the Vice days and and you guys not necessarily always feeling like you fit in with some of the bands you were playing with, some of the festival you know lineups or or whatever. Um, but somebody who I always viewed as a contemporary of your guys's and a collaborator, obviously, is King Khan. And he's another guy who, to me, it's like, I listen to these, like, the great kind of free jazz records that he's making these days. And yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I love the kind of punker, punk rocker, to use a very antiquated term in a lot of ways, it feels antiquated. As you already mm -hmm. mentioned, dads are punk rockers now, you know, but my favorite kind of creator is somebody who's like not particularly worried about how they will be perceived or what, you know, people will think about what they're doing. Khan seems like he's like firmly cut from that cloth you know the sort of he's gonna do whatever he wants and it's like oh you kind of liked when i did like the amped up r&b well i'm gonna do some free jazz or you know uh you liked the free jazz stuff well here's a weird electro thing you know and i and i feel like in some ways you guys kind of uh share that sensibility when did you guys first meet him how did you guys first cross paths with with king con well to be perfectly honest, we hated him when we first met him. Um, really? Yeah. He, uh, it was our first show we ever played in Germany. It was in Munster, Germany. 
And uh, he hitchhiked to our show from Berlin. No, from Castle. He was living in Castle, Germany. And he came there and I didn't know who he was. And I was like setting up our merch. And I guess he heard we peed and stuff. And he was like, hey, check this out. And he walked up to our merch table. This was before anyone was in the venue. And he like peed in his mouth and spit it all over our shirts. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Okay. And then like, <laughs> and then we started playing and somehow he got on stage with like a birthday cake. I guess it was the promoter's birthday and he stole the cake and just started winging it all over the crowd and all over us. And then like, so the stage was all slippery with icing and there was like, and then he had broken all these beer bottles on stage. So you're like sliding around in this icing and like, I fell in it and like cut my hand open and he like, he drank my blood. And we were like, all right, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, in those days, I was probably like 19. Yeah. Um, so it was like kind of funny. But I still didn't know who this like, we were in Germany and it's just this like really tall, weird, like Canadian dude. Yeah. And uh, and then somehow like the venue banned him. They He got kicked out. And then somehow he ended up back at the place we were staying. And we had to like leave at like 6 a.m. for a long, long drive. And he just stayed there all night, like just talking. And then by the end of the night, early in the morning, we loved him. And I actually went to stay with him that summer in Berlin. And then, you know, for the last 20 years, I've gone to Germany every summer and stayed with him and done projects with him. And, you know, you kind of like, he was one of those people that, you know, he's been like, I've said we were like kind of a collective. He's kind of been a member before he's recorded a bunch of our stuff. Um, right. Kind of has the same. He had the grew up kind of the same as us, had the same like mindset, started at the same age, makes music kind of the same. It's like, you know, you were talking about how he does like different things and it's weird. I think the key to like doing good stuff, at least for me, is just like I think you achieve more success if you just like don't not that you don't try, but you just do what you like and do what feels good. Like we try like we you know i want to make songs that i like that sound cool but it's like don't try to be something you're not and it's just like be passionate about it yeah i mean is there a sense like it's 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 one of those things that is is pretty intuitive that process right like when you when it feels right when it sounds right when you're like yeah this is cool i like this yeah i like it like i would never like we've i think part of the reason we've like sometimes felt like the odd ones out and when i say i feel like the odd ones out we're not like sitting on the side like sad about it we're like oh this we're not like <laughs> we don't quite we don't quite fit in but it's like we've just always done like we've never tried to follow a trend like i've just tried to recreate music that i would like personally we haven't been like oh this is like the cool thing now we should try and sound like that because th then you i think you can tell for sure. And then it doesn't feel good. It probably wouldn't feel good on the inside. No. And it's weird. Like the listener can tell, like the listener knows when they're being pandered to, you know, they might even like it, but they can tell. And yeah, it's like, that doesn't strike me as something that makes sense for a group like yours. You know, that said, I mean, you guys have sort of had brushes with the mainstream as well um i think about you know like you mentioned some of the song placements in movies and stuff like that and a lot of people hearing your stuff who maybe wouldn't have been exposed to it or even working with somebody like mark ronson and i wondered if you guys had thoughts while that stuff was going on like of being a mainstream band was that ever even something that you really kicked around this idea not let's do this so that we can become a mainstream band, but just what that felt like internally. If yeah, it felt like yeah. Anything. Well, we were going to continue. Like, I always thought like every progression for us was kind of unlikely. So it was always like kind of surprising. I was like, Oh, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Like, you know, I remember Cole would always say like, you know, he wanted to have like a top 10 hit, but like the first, like really lo-fi, like top 10 hit. And like, yeah, yeah. I'd always kind of say like, that would rule if we could play the Super Bowl or something like that. But we would never like compromise like what we did. Like if it happened, that would be rad. But like, I'm just happy. You know, I was just happy in the beginning with getting a meal paid for or having a hotel room or like being able to have anyone come to our shows. So like, 
and just having a good time. So as long as I have that, like anything extra, like cool. Yeah. But like, you know, as long as you don't compromise like your integrity, then like, you know, so that's been like interesting seeing and like really with like getting Mark Ronson, that was kind of like a fluke. We didn't even set out to get a producer. Like, like when we signed device, they kept asking us to get a producer. And at that time I didn't know what a producer was. Um, like I didn't know what they did. And so our first record with them, we were just like, no, we'll just do it ourselves. I don't understand. I truly didn't understand what a producer did. I was like, you mean the engineer? Like we got an engineer. He's at the studio. He owns it. Um, so then like by, before the Mark Ronson record, we were like, okay, fine. And we were kind of being cheeky. So we just made a list of like, I think we even Googled like world's top producers. So it was like, you know, Dr. Dre and all these huge names thinking like that's so far out of reach. They'll, you know, that'll never happen. But I guess like vice was pretty big or is pretty big. Um, and Mark Ronson was doing like, um, some sort of collaboration with them. I was really surprised when I got the call saying he wanted to do it. Oh, we put him on because, like, uh, I really liked that Amy Winehouse record. So I was like, oh, yeah, that record sounds amazing. Um, Just throw that on there. I mean, we were trying to shoot so high. It was like, sure, we were. It was kind of a joke at first. I mean, not kind of. It was it was a joke at first. But then it happened. Then it really (laughs) then it really happened. (laughs) That's why I said, like, I wanted to play the Super Bowl. Like, who knows? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hope that I, I mean, I would love to see a Black Lips Super Bowl performance in my life. So <laughs> let's put it out into the world. Yeah, we'll manifest the it. <laughs> yeah, the law of attraction. We will, uh, we will think on this. We will put our intention into the universe and we'll let the Super Bowl committee do its, uh, do what thou will, uh, Super Bowl people. But, um, no, I, I just, I, uh, I think about how how much time you guys spent on the road and how much time you've dedicated to to traveling and rolling around uh, from city to city doing this sort of improbable art project. I I have a friend, his name is Joel Marquard, and he he plays in a group called Spiritual Warfare. And he and I were talking, he loves the Black Lips very much. And he sent me some uh clips from coast to coast am you know the late night paranormal radio show. yeah 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 i love that show uh i think he sent me some clips of cole calling in <laughs> and uh yeah. telling kind of various stories of like mystical occurrences and stuff and so i wanted to ask <laughs> if that was a was that something that you guys would listen to in the van at night pretty regularly all, all the time that was the best show like it yeah. was that and we had a because we had a tape player so i mean we it was that i the first like five years of us touring in my mind it's coast to coast and this howlin wolf tape that we had a howlin wolf tape and a richard Pryor tape that we just wore out till they wouldn't even play anymore yeah that's balanced listening i like that a lot (laughs) um was so if we're talking coast to coast i would it have already have been George Norrie as the host or, or did you have some of the Art Bell shows? Art, we had some Art Bell. Yeah. 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 Early, yeah. early on. The, uh, there's a drop off in terms of how much I love it, you know, pre Art Bell, post Art Bell, but I still kind of love it. You know, it's like, there's something about the atmosphere of just AM radio, the way the, yeah, especially the, like, especially like at night when you're driving like out West, I have a really like fond memories of that. Just like being in the desert for the first time and listening to that, that, and um, when we could find Phil Hendry, he was like, that's sure. like kind of AM radio gold as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Were you guys into like the weirdo side of things coast to coast? I mean, did you guys ever have any, did you ever see anything weird? Have you ever seen a UFO while on tour? No, I wish I could tell you we could. I've actually never really had any experiences with the paranormal. I think you have to be kind of in tune to it. I guess like deep down, I haven't really believed in it that much. So I don't see apparitions. Uh, I always hear people tell stories about it. I'm like, dang, I wish that could happen to me. But 
Yeah, no, nothing, nothing too weird out there. I was also a lot of the time, maybe I did. I was heavily, heavily intoxicated for a lot of those early years. So yeah. I didn't really know what was going on. What if if it's not too personal? When did you uh, realize that you needed to make some changes in that department in your life? When did how did that happen? If it's not you know, if it's something oh, no. you're willing to share. Oh yeah, not personal at all. Um, it was really when the pandemic started because it was the first time I got off tour. I mean, we were like, especially the first ten years. A lot of years we were on tour eight months out of the year. Yeah, and like, like most re- of the time. really, really spread out. So I lived on the road, you know, pretty much up until the ban- pandemic started. Um, yeah, and then once that stopped, I realized like, oh, you know, also getting older. <clears throat> but I, there was like a, just like a big reckoning. It was the first time I had a chance to like sit down. So I decided to um, just change my life, kind of and. And for a while, I wasn't sure if it was going to work um, still doing the band or if I would even like it anymore. But I have found um, a way to make it work. And, you know, it's like it's it's like cool. It's like a, it's all new to me. So like going on tour is like a, a lot. It's like fresh now. It's like all new experiences. Um, like I don't yeah. regret any of the uh, wild times. I had a fucking blast. But, um, but, you know, I just, I think a lot of people like during that whole pandemic time, that was like, a, that was like a real big, uh, <laughs> like, you know, I think a lot of people change things up. I think, I don't think if I, if I wouldn't have changed things up, like the way I was going and I would have just had two years of idle time, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. Yeah. Well, in that case, I'm very glad that you made the calls you made because it's, you know, I know, but I know what you mean. And I, I do think that the, I do think that the pandemic threw a, a monkey wrench a little bit. I mean, obviously it changed things up, but more than anything, I think it just disrupted probably for a lot of us, just years that it just, we were just doing what made sense, kind of rolling along. All of a sudden you had this period that didn't feel like anything we'd experienced in our lives and you had a lot of time to think and a lot of time to ask yourself some questions you know some of those questions i think turned out to be hard ones to address but i'm glad that i'm glad that you did so has the band at this point um how does how does how does the black lips work at this point do you guys decide hey i've got seven or eight songs hey i've got five you know now it's time to get together and make a record is that sort of the way it works or or is there regular practice or how does it how does it kind of function um it's always been we don't practice we've never practiced we don't none of us live in the same cities or countries like jeff lives in germany oakley's in new york colin zumi are in la and i'm in atlanta but usually, like, we record a record, we go on tour for a long time, and then when we've hit all those places, we're like, all right, let's write another record. Um, yeah. Oak- Oakley spent the pandemic converting his barn into a studio, so now we kind of have, like, a Black Lips studio, or we do, we have, like, a Black Lips studio up in the Catskills. Um, so probably this summer, we'll, like, all go up there. It was cool. Um towards the end of the pandemic, all of us, we hadn't seen each other in over a year and everyone slowly trickled um, up to Oakley's and we all spent like, I was there like four months and everyone else was about three months, just like, hang. he's like, you know, he's out in the country. So it was like, cool. We all like got to go up there and do that. So we'll probably do that again soon. Like we've, we're going on this next UK tour and then we're done or we don't have really anything booked. So yeah. Um, but we, like I said, we don't really ever really plan all that much. And usually I'm traditionally, I've been really on everyone's ass to like, we got to go do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. But, um, I'm a lot more since I, since I kind of changed things around, I'm like a little less drill sergeant and like a lot, you know, so I yeah. kind of let things go at the pace they need to, to go now. So I guess yeah. whenever everyone's ready. 
Excellent. Well, until then, there's a lot of records to listen to and a lot of stuff to dig into. Uh, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and uh, taking a break from the deck to to chill out with me and, and talk about this stuff. Like I said, I've, I've, I've been a big fan and Aquarium Drunkards always loved the Black Lips and always been such a so so um yeah we went to the same high school i think well you got you guys and justin right yeah yeah which is which is which is wild <laughs> you know um it feels like such a small world but anytime i get a chance to talk with him about that sort of thing you know and and his sense as he's an la guy he's been an la guy for a long time but of course he's got this the southern the southern background and and is really a product of bands like you guys and and rem and all of the rich history out there so yeah we uh we appreciate it and thank you so much for taking the time to talk man it was my pleasure it was, it was great talking to you all right be well talk soon have a wonderful day talk to you later bye and that's going to bring us to a close this week Thank you for listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Maston. Find more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com. That's M-A-S-T-O-N.bandcamp.com. Art for the show is created by Dakota Brown. Our executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his weekly radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday. We're part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Next week on Transmissions, guitarist Mark Rabot joins me to talk about the new Ceramic Dog album and a lot more. It's a great talk. Stay safe until then, and be well. This transmission is concluded. <laughs>